So I got a phone call last night fairly late to fill in. <laughs> well, fairly late for me. It's probably 7. To fill in for tonight, and I started wondering what am I going <laughs> to teach. And I'd been speaking with a friend who is not of the Reformed camp uh, about Reformed theology. And we have, you know, our little text message conversations back and forth. And it just got me to thinking, you know, why Reformed theology? And you, it really boils down to, it came from another conversation I had with a uh, Pentecostal pastor. And he, he was giving his side of the story, his evidence, and I was presenting mine. And I finally ended it with this. I said, so what's the greater God? A God that saves you in spite of yourself, who comes down and says, you're mine, or a God that demands you to say, to make some kind of works-based confession of faith. And this is from an Armenian. He says, yours is the greater God. And in Reformed theology, it seeks to glorify God above all else. It seeks to magnify him above all else. Salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. Nothing you can do to earn it, nothing you can do to keep it. It is 100% by God and through God. This magnificent God, sin entered into the world, and then all the way back into Genesis, the plan of redemption was set in stone. Their seed was going to redeem the people of God all the way back then. This loving God come up with this plan of salvation to redeem those people. He gave his own son. If you could imagine giving up your child for the transgressions of another, how horrible that would be when your child is a sinner. This is a perfect, sinless person who gave his life. There's no greater love than that. So Reformed theology seeks to glorify God above all else. It's, it is fixated on God's holiness and the fact that we are not and that there's nothing in and of ourselves to make us holy apart from Christ. And it is the most glorifying doctrine that there is. And you have the five solas of this, the, the Reformation, which is Scripture alone that gives us the authority for all truth and in life. There was no other authority. The, the Pope does not have authority over... If, if the, the Pope speaks the truth of Scripture, it's true. If the Pope goes against it, it's obviously false, and that's why you know, the Reformation became a necessity. Faith alone, there is no human effort involved. Ephesians 2... Verses 8 and 9, you are saved by grace through faith, not of works of yourselves. It is a gift of God, salvation, grace, and faith. All gifts from God. The, the faith that you believe is a gift from God. Grace alone, it's, it's free. If, if I had to say a prayer or sign a card or even be baptized, that would place works upon it. And then I would have a reason to say, well, I got baptized, so I... I did my part, you know. No. You know, that's that's baptismal regeneration, by the way. Um, some people think if 
If Richard made a profession of faith before he could get to that baptismal, he killed over dead right there from a heart attack. He is not saved. It's that ridiculous. It's fine works. It's no longer free. Christ alone being the intercessor for our, our sins, the, uh, the atonement for our sins, the propitiation. He alone, nothing else. Not a priest saying, say a couple of Hail Marys and count your rosaries and go and sin till the next time I see you. It's Christ alone. He is our great high priest. And to God's glory alone, it's our highest duty as, as human beings. It's the first question of the catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And no other doctrine, in my opinion, which you know, that and $6 will buy you a cup of coffee at Starbucks, but it's true. That alone is uh, the highest order of Reformed theology. So we're probably going to jump around quite a bit. Um, this will be more like a study, I guess, and uh, you know, follow along if you want to follow along or just take notes, however you want to do it. So we have Scripture alone, Second Peter 1. Verse 20 and 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be completely, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture alone. It's God-breathed theonoustos in the Greek. It comes from God. As men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit, they penned it. It is God's word. Anything that contradicts God's word is worthless. If it agrees with it, it's gold. And faith alone, John 3.16. We all know that one, right? It's the most quoted verse in all of the Bible. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Who are the whosoever? The elect. We'll get to that. Ephesians 2. We've already read that. By grace you have been saved. Through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift from God. It's faith alone. Grace alone, same verse, by grace through faith. For 
for we as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that's the result. All gifts from God. Why? Why? Why would these be gifts from God? It's that no man should boast. He could not say that I had a hand in anything that God done in his plan of redemption for us. I forget the, the guy's name. Some theologian said God thought it. Christ bought it and the Holy Spirit wrought it. It was brought about that way. In Christ alone, the Catholic Church puts the high, the, the priest is the, you know, the Catholic priest is the high priest. He's the intercessor. He's the one that can absolve you of sin. Reformed theology puts Christ as the intercessor. He is the high priest. He is the one in his rightful place as the high priest. Hebrews 4.15. Hebrews 4.15 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted, yet as we are, yet without sin. Is a Catholic priest without sin? The answer is no, he's man. Our high priest was tempted in all points as we were or are, yet without sin. Glory to God alone. This emphasizes God's glory as the goal of life. Not necessarily keeping rules or cutting your hair same, you know, a certain way. You have to dress a certain way. Listen to the right kind of music. Your soul focus is the glory of God, not paying money to this ministry or that ministry, not guarding your self-interest, but glorifying God in what you say and do as a child of God. Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments. The primary difference here is that the holiness of God is foundational and glorifying him is at the heart of this doctrine. Those two things. You have to understand that God is holy, you're not. And when you understand that, you come to faith through the work of the Holy Spirit. And then your primary focus is to glorify God. Do we do it perfectly? Absolutely not. Now this part may be a little abrasive for some. And... I genuinely almost despise the word Calvinism. And I will not refer to myself as a Calvinist. And I, I feel it is just me, and I'm not trying to trash anybody, but I, don't, I will not elevate the name of Calvin above Christ. And sometimes I think that's what it, it happens. I've even heard some pastors say that Jesus was a Calvinist. That's... That's pretty brazen. I mean, I, I, I couldn't do it. It's a hard pass for me, on, definitely on that. Um, so Calvin was a sinner, obviously, saved by grace, but nowhere near, nowhere near our Lord. He was not deity. He was a brilliant man, a brilliant teacher. 
Christ wasn't a Calvinist. Calvin was a Christist. <laughs> if, you, if you had to put it in terms. But with that being said, I'm going to borrow from the tulip. Because <laughs> Calvin. I don't think Calvin wrote the tulip. Is that, is that right? I was trying to find. Yeah, Calvin did not come up with the tulip. It was, uh, I, don't, I couldn't find who did, but it was in response to uh, Arminius. Uh, he had his own points, I think it was. I never read them because it's pointless for me. But we'll start with uh, total depravity. If you'll go to Romans 5. Verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. So original sin was brought into the world through Adam, and he, then Adam blamed God. He's like, that's the woman you gave me. <laughs> Good stuff. That's what we do too, right? That temptation was there, God. It's your fault. So sin was born in the world. We're all born sinners. We're irredeemable in and of ourselves. It can't happen. Romans 5.10 Tells us that are none righteous, no, not one. I uh, some months ago, I had the people were complaining that they couldn't call the church, so I had Jerry put my phone number on the church's website, which has turned out to be not fun sometimes. But I got a phone call for some. I guess he was a musician. He was looking to partner with other churches to go and play music for people and stuff. So I started, you know, and he started out with like, you know, I'm a good person and I know you're a good person and, you know, I want to get together with other good people so I can, can play my music to inspire other people to be good. And I was like, well, hold on. <laughs> what makes you think I'm a good person? He's like, well, you you go to church. And I was like, so, and, you know, an extremely long story short was I had, basically had to convince this man that I was not a good person and that he was not a good person. And I used, obviously, these verses. And uh, I was like, so why did, you, why did you call, you know, how did you, why did you call this church first? He's like, oh, you know, well, not first. I said, why did you call us? He's like, oh, you're the first church I called. I was like, dude, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I just shot your whole, your whole thing down. But I told him to read, you know. I was like, read James, read read John, read something for me. I was like, do you ever read the Bible? No, I don't really feel like I need to. I was like, well, are you a Christian? Well, kind of, sort of, you know. And I was like, well, you know, do, do some reading. Do, read some of this for me and call me. The guy called me back. So, he, you know, he's reading James. He's like, yeah, I, you know, I, I do some of those things in my life, and I see a lot of myself in James. And I was like, okay, well, now your motivation's wrong. <laughs> because if you're not doing those things to glorify God, you're glorifying yourself, and you're taking glory away from God. So, it's like, read some more and then call me again. So I haven't heard from him yet, but I think I really took the wind out of his sails, and I hope that I made him think. It's like, what are you doing? Like, what, what is your motivation, and why would you assume that anybody's good when, when the Bible tells us that there's none good? There is none at all. And I think that's a problem in the non-reform camps. Like, you know, they say, you know, say, oh, yeah, I know Richard. He's a good Christian man, you know, good Christian. And... 
you know, by, by my standards, Richard is a good man, but I have pretty low standards as far as that goes. I mean, my standard is Christ. Now, if, if I compared Richard to Christ, like it's, it's, it's not going to happen. And I think Richard would agree. If not, we need to talk later, Richard. So then we have unconditional election. John 1, 13. And there's so much of the sovereignty of God through an election through the, the gospel of John. Everybody points to most a lot of Paul's writings in which are, you know, obviously littered with with uh, the sovereignty of God in election. But, but John is... It's maybe a little bit more subtle, but in, well, except for chapter six, he uh, he really nailed it. But well, started verse twelve. But as many have received him, then he gave them the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, the will of God. This is the rebirth. You were born by the will of God. Ephesians 1. And I asked my friend, by the way, that I've been texting about Reformed theology. I asked him how he got past the first chapter of Ephesians because he, he doesn't believe in predestination or election or to an extent. I was like, how do you get past the first chapter of Ephesians? He said, I go to the second chapter of Ephesians. <laughs> I was like, okay, you know, you might as well just tell me to trust the science at this point, you know, like the, the cop-out that everyone else uses for uh, whatever they want to, whatever point they want to get across. But it says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blame, without blame before him in love, having predestined us, through adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. It's pretty plain, isn't it? And most would agree that grace is, is unconditional. And then, on the same token, they put conditions on grace. You've got to say this prayer. You have to be baptized. Poor Richard didn't make it. You have to cut your hair a certain way. You have to keep these rules. You've got to turn into a Pharisee. Rules upon rules. And most will agree also that God is sovereign, apart from election. You know, choose God. Is a bluegrass song or a gospel song I heard on the radio and it was an instrumental break it was coming to the bridge and then the guy starts talking he's like you know I thank God that I was smart enough to choose Jesus Christ before it was too late and I'm just sitting there cringing as I'm driving I'm like do you know what you're saying like like that's the opposite of Ephesians of Ephesians 2 like you're boasting you you put yourself above the work of Christ and I'm sure it's out of ignorance, and that's another thing that breeds ignorance is is uh, poor doctrine. I mean, you you have uh, you know a lot of sugar-coated preaching that 
they don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Um, I did see a sign that said the sugar sugar coated preaching leads to truth decay. I think I've seen that other places too, but it's pretty pretty funny and definitely accurate. So Romans nine. I didn't hear anybody cheering, but come on, Paul. I mean Todd. Romans 9. We'll jump in at verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah, who has also conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the younger shall serve the, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, have loved, but Esau I have hated. So does God love everyone equally? No. He does not. In one of our conversations, I sent my friend a text message and I said, Is is Israel God's chosen people? Absolutely, was the response sent him Galatians 3 I think it's around 20 verse 28 where it basically says that Christians are Israel we are Israel we're grafted in we are children of the promise just as every other Jew that came in under the covenant before us it's funny how you're okay with saying God chose Israel God chose Israel and then you turn around and you say, you got to choose God. you got to choose God. Is God different? Does he have different means to come to him for different people? It's nowhere in Scripture. It doesn't happen. And then we get to the Armenians' really, really hard one, limited atonement. In Matthew 1, Verse 21, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Whose people? His people. In John 10, we'll be coming to this soon on our Sunday morning worship. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I'm known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. He knows his sheep. Sheep know him. I never had sheep, but we had a farm with cows and when I would walk 
I would get off the bus. My job was to feed the cows. I was like seven years old. The cows waited for me at the gate. They knew me. They knew they were getting fed. And they followed me to the barn and watched me load hay on a trailer and a tractor, and I drove it up the hill and threw hay off. They knew me. I didn't lay down my life for them. Well, nor would I. Christ is a great shepherd who is willing to do that. And it's a beautiful picture of sheep being totally dependent, totally ignorant, following the shepherd, knowing their shepherd. They wouldn't stray from their shepherd. John 6. Verse 37. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees here. These really religious people that kept all the rules and did everything just right. He says, all, the Father, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one that comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him shall have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. On down in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And on down, verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe, and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, he said, that no one can come to me unless that has been granted to him by my Father. Does this sound like anyone can just wake up and genuinely say, I'm going to be a Christian or I choose to be a Christian apart from the work of the Holy Spirit when it says plainly, no one can come to me three times in one chapter, talking to the most religious people in their day. No one can come to me unless it has been granted to them by my Father. So did they believe? I mean, these, these are the people that should have recognized, if anything, who Christ is. God in the flesh is standing right in front of them, giving them the truth of God, just hammering them with it constantly for like seven chapters. And they didn't believe. And these are Jews, God's chosen people, Right? They're unbelievers. They were not of the elect. They were unable to believe. In John 3, 3, Christ told Nicodemus, you must be born again, a Pharisee. Dotted all of his spiritual I's, crossed all of his spiritual T's. He, you know, 
had everything going on. He was doing everything to the letter. Christ's like, you got to start over. You must be born again. And Nicodemus is confused. I, I entered my mother's womb a second time, and he's kind of being sarcastic. And like, no, you you must start over. You must be regenerated, reborn spiritually. And did you have any part in your in your birth? Did I decide, hey, I'm, I think I'm going to be born. Let's, let's do this. She looks like a good mom. I think I'll choose her to give me birth or birth me, however that works. It doesn't happen. Ephesians 2, 1 says we are dead in trespasses and sins. Can dead men do anything at all other than stink? possible. I cannot be dead and say, hey, I think I want to live again. It doesn't work that way. In Ezekiel chapter 37, the hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord. And set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were many. In the open valley. And indeed, they were very, very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, Oh Lord God, you know. And again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you, and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise. And suddenly rattling, the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and flesh came upon them, and skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Also he said to me, prophesy to breathe. Prophesy, son of man, and say to breathe. Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breathe, and breathe on the slain that I, they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and stood upon their feet in an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O oh my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves, and bring you into the land of Israel, that you shall know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves, O people, and brought you up from your graves, I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live. I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and performed it, says the Lord. 
these dry bones do anything in and of themselves? No. And if you really want to, when it really boils down to it, the atonement is limited no matter what doctrine. If the atonement's limited by God because he chooses the elect, redeems the elect, sanctifies the elect, brings the elect home, then it's limited. If it's limited by people's brazen, I just don't want to believe, you know, you've got to choose whether or not to believe, it's limited. Because if the atonement wasn't limited, there would be no one in hell. So no matter what, it's limited. And then we get to the eye, irresistible grace. We'll go back to John, chapter 6 again. Verse 44 again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Draws is helko in the Greek. It means to draw in, draw inward power, lead, impel. No one can come to him, Christ, unless the Father compels him, draws him, brings him in. It is impossible. Titus 3. Verse 3, for we, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out of us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, that we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The Holy Spirit. We're made alive by the Holy Spirit. New breath is breathed into us. A new heart is put into us. New desires are the result for the good works prepared beforehand that we may bring glory to him. Nothing in and of ourselves. The scriptures are clear. Perseverance of the saints. Look at John chapter 10. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I am the father of one. It sounds like you could lose your salvation, as some like to teach. Not 
according to this, in First John, John tells us, if they depart from us, they were never of us. They're never saved. Nothing can snatch them out of your hand, his hand. Eternal security. I don't like the term necessarily once saved, always saved, because it leads to confusion. It's true. Look at Romans 8. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he called. Whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say? these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? So anything that comes to pass is God's will. Good, bad, ugly, indifferent. It's God's will. When we sin, God sees his son. We are clothed in Christ's righteousness. We were adopted children, declared not guilty, but the judge comes off the stand and clothes us in his own son's righteousness at that point. Praise his holy name. We're children. Born again, children, heirs and joint heirs with Christ. Common arguments against Reformed theology, the most common verses that I hear is 1 John 2, 2, where it says that he had died for the sins of not only us, but of the whole world. And John is speaking, he's a Jew. The world means other than Jew, Gentile. That's a pretty simple way. And if you think if in John 12, 19, the... Um, the Pharisees are, are angry and they're trying to, to, to get him and they're complaining. And it's like, look, the whole world has gone after him. So did the whole world go after him? Obviously not because the Jews hated him. So the world has to be put in context. And in the context of 1 John 2, 2, it's that John is a Jew. Speaking of the world is other than Jew. That's the explanation for that. Second Peter 3, 9. I will turn to that so I can explain that hopefully. Everybody knows this one. Uh, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. Long-suffering toward who? Us. Okay. Not willing that any should perish. Any. But all should come to repentance. So you've got us, any, and all. Okay. Go back to chapter 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who have attained 
like precious faith, were thus by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord. To those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Who is this written to? To those who have obtained like precious faith. Believers. So let's read it again. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, or the us, believers, not willing that any should perish. Who are the any? Any of us, believers, but that all should come to repentance. Who are the all? All of us. Context matters. One of the one of the problems with numbering verses is you get stuff like this. Because you can take that one verse and do that. It's not right. Context is your friend. So the gospel is that Christ died for sinners. all sinners looking around we're all saved by grace through the people that I know and hear according to what I've seen now our chief end is to glorify God so if you ask me why reform theology that's it in a nutshell to realize God is holy we're not and come to faith by the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And we glorify God. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we come into your presence once again, we thank you so much for your word that we may learn of you, that we may glorify you, that we may know your commandments, that we love your law, Almighty God. Lord, we just ask that as we leave here tonight, that we bring glory and honor to you in all that we say and do. Let us be lights in this world. We love you and we praise you. All of God's children say.